Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. On this podcast, I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description, and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. And please download my free guide to spotting burnout in your employees on my website, drjacquelinekerr.com. This week, I'm talking about addressing the pay gap to prevent burnout with HR expert and mums at work advocate, Alison Venditti. Alison is based in Canada, but is a global expert in HR. She supports working mums through her organization, Mums at Work. She posts and speaks regularly about pay transparency and pay equity at work. And we know that lack of reward is an important condition for burnout. So pay equity can also prevent burnout. Of course, when I first reached out to Alison, she was way too busy to be on the podcast. But as the pandemic took its toll and she personally experienced burnout, she wanted to share her story so others could see that it's normal to be undone by what we are going through at the moment. You can find key takeaways on the episode website, drjacquelinekerr.com, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alison as much as I did. My name is Alison Venditti. I am the mom of three boys who are 10, 8, and 3. Very busy is an understatement, but it's what I signed up for when I had a third. So that's been interesting. I run an organization called Moms at Work, and we are Canada's first professional association for working mothers, born out of the pandemic. And we focus on community education and advocacy. Great. Thanks so much. And it probably feels like you've got three bears in your house. I always think of boy kids as like the way the bears rough and tumble. Oh, yes. Like rough and tumble doesn't even covered it. They broke our couch twice in the last month. <laughs> so Alison, please start with describing your journey to where you are now in your career. We know with mums so often, guests on my show, it, it's not a straightforward journey. So take us through that and let us know how you got to where you are now. When you start out, you look around you and look at all the other examples in the world. Some people are teachers or accountants, and I never had that sort of direction in my life. So when I went to university, I started classics so I can translate your menu into Latin. Oh my goodness. I did not know we had, well, that in common. So in England, we have exams between 16 and 18 and the subjects that I had there were Latin, history, French, and Greek. And that's what I wanted to do at university was classics. But in the end, I did French and philosophy. But my goodness, I am such a um, lover of that type of education. So well, when you go into first year here in Canada, you do an assortment of things if you do an arts degree. And, and I did. I love classics. And I also did history and, and then did a minor in art history. What I planned to do with that, I had no idea. But I also worked part-time during university and I ran children's programs. And when I graduated, my boss 
I, you know, they used to have those course manuals and my boss was looking through it with me and she was like, you already do all the HR work. Why don't you do that? So I, so I was like, oh, that sounds like a good enough reason. So I did HR and I actually fell in love. I was the only person in my health and safety class where I was like, this is my thing. I need to be in health and safety. That's it. I went and did HR and my specialty became return to work and accommodation and life bumped along. Uh, well, it didn't bump along. My mom passed away when I was 24. And then my father-in-law passed away when I was 29. So we did our first round of caregiving even before we had kids. And that, that didn't seem to phase much, but it did move me back to Toronto after I took care of my mom. And I joined a consulting firm, which uh, was all the things I needed. So it gave me access to lots of different clients. I got to build huge programs. I got lots of things. And after my first son, it didn't really phase me. I went back when he was 10, 11 months. And usually when we talk about maternity leave, though, we think that it's just going to be a year in our career. It's just going to be like a one year off. And it, to- it totally isn't. I put my career on stall because I was pregnant and knew I was going to be leaving. So I didn't apply for anything. I didn't go any places. You know, I was just trying to figure out how to be pregnant. And then I had my baby. I came back. I got pregnant really soon after I got back and had a miscarriage. And that was devastating. And then I got pregnant with my second. So I, when I look back, there's a whole like five year span where I was just having babies and not doing the things that I thought I should do because I felt like I wasn't supposed to, if that makes sense, because I'm going to go on my leave again. And when my kids were three and one, I ended up with a traumatic brain injury and was off work for three years. So I was on long-term disability. I basically got packaged out at the end. They said, you will never work again. Here's your check. Have a nice life. And then I was left with that. So that put me in a place that I was not prepared to be in. And we were very prepared for me not to work again. And that was just going to be a reality. And I decided that I wanted to be able to, whatever I did, the most I was able to function at, like in any sort of like thinking capacity was about eight hours a week. So the options were few, (laughs) the options were few and it couldn't involve any reading. So I lost the ability to read as part of my injury. And so that was harder than I thought it was going to be. And so I did some career coaching, got myself some fancy software And it was working really well. And as I worked more than my abilities um, through a lot of therapy got better and um, career love grew and then moms at work grew out of that. So it's been a long, not straight journey of things, but through career coaching, I found out that I wasn't alone and that every woman that I was working with, and it was mostly women were also mothers. And we were all sort of feeling this collective rage about how work wasn't working for us. And I think we really felt during the pandemic that things would change. And I've been disappointed in the lack of change. And so Moms at Work sprung into action and said, you know what, we can't, we can sit around and wait for it, or we can do it ourselves. So that's where we are now. Thank you for that. And a lot of ups and downs there and different experiences, which I think really forms what you do now as well in terms of you have an understanding of motherhood you have an understanding of caregiving for parents you have an understanding of disability so I I can really appreciate how that's made you such a great advocate these days so yeah tell us a little bit how you did evolve from career love to mums at work tell us a little bit more about that transition 
So I always tell people moms at work wasn't supposed to happen, right? So I was doing really well. I in career love, I was doing some HR work. I was doing some coaching. My kids were little. I got pregnant with my third in 2018. And really what I found was that I was being asked to speak at these events. So now as a career coach, I was being asked to speak at these women's events and they were all at 4.30 on a Wednesday. And I said, well, I have to pick up my kid from daycare. And someone said to me, don't you have someone to do that for you? And in my head, I was like, no, do you? <laughs> daycare is the thing. And then at the end of daycare, that's the end of the thing because I'm paying $100 a day for daycare. And I had a conversation shortly thereafter with another person who was like, my boss invited me to this thing. It's at 5.45 and same sort of issue. Like nothing, even in women's group, nothing was being considered for mothers. And so I said, forget it. I'm going to start this Facebook group. I'm going to call it moms at work because this other name that I wanted didn't exist. And I said, all we're going to do is we're going to have our own sort of like networking thing. So how networking is defined usually is that it's very siloed. So you only get to talk to other people who are in architecture, if you're an architect, or you only hang out with the women's group in engineering. And what I found was that most of my clients were with me because they wanted to try something different. So whatever they were doing, they'd done for 20 years, wasn't working anymore. And they didn't want to be an architect anymore. And what I would end up doing was connecting them with other clients who did different things. And that's how you do career changes by finding out, especially as mothers, we're extraordinarily risk adverse for all the right reasons is that you really need to understand what sits on the other side before you go chase after it. So moms at work for the longest time was just 300 women and we had coffee and we had little like networking events that were free and we just hung out at a bar <laughs> and it was great. And so many people were like, wow, it's so nice to be around other people who just get me and I don't have to apologize or censor myself and not talk about my children, which is a problem in professional networking. It's you're a bit afraid people are going to know you have kids. And then once word got out, it grew and grew. <laughs> now we have 10,000 people in this Facebook group, but we also have events. We have speakers that come in. I did advocacy before. This was a really easy transition for me. And I think women really needed at this moment, especially just before the pandemic, the pandemic hit and it got even more pressing. All the things that we were talking about now became reality. All the unfair labor at home and the issues around flexible work and remote working. So it was very timely, but here's where we are now. And that's it. I did a hundred media articles this year, a hundred, a hundred things that shows you just how pressing this issue is. And for the first time, really how interested companies are at listening to the issues of other females. And you're also now transitioning out of Facebook because it became unmanageable, right? Um, yeah. So we have a very big Facebook group and I think for accessibility reasons, we're going to keep it because there are a lot of people who don't have space and don't have time. So for at least the next year, like that's going to stay, but we do have another platform that we work on for our smaller group that functions like Facebook. I mean, it's a mix of Slack, but it's really nice to be able to have a smaller, safer space that people we're looking for it because it's really big. And our goal is to, as soon as we can, is to get back to doing some in-person stuff and people spread out across Canada. So I'm excited for people to be able to meet other people in their towns. Great. That's great. So you did focus at first on leave and returning to work and, and now your efforts include pay transparency. How, how did you decide what to focus on uh, and, and what else are you looking at? So Mums at Work at its core, we focus on money. So I truly believe that nothing bad happens when you pay women more money, right? Nothing bad will happen if you pay women more money. And it upset me the fact that we have two pay equity commissioners in Canada. 
whose sole job and division is responsible for making sure that women get paid equally to men. And I'm like, it requires like punitive measures to get companies to do this. And that is a sad state that we have to resort to those things because people can't do the right thing. But what I found was when I started the Facebook group, I said to people, I said, no, you can't post a job in here if you don't tell us what the pay is. And people were angry. And they were like, no jobs do that. And I was like, it's a system designed to hurt you because women are paid 15% less than men. So oftentimes we don't negotiate ourselves in, into this place and, and we find out we're paid significantly less than our male counterparts. And then, you know, you rinse and repeat. And so I said, no, we are allowed to make that standard. We are allowed to push back in systems that hurt us. And then it snowballed. But Ontario, where we live, already has pay transparency legislation almost ready to go. That was a huge thing that we were involved like I was involved in before. And with our current government, it got squashed a bit. So it's still written, still ready to go. We just have to get in a new government to push it through. But I really think it's important for women to understand this. So they say, I'm like, why would you buy toilet paper if you didn't have a price on it? No, you would go and ask somebody what the price is because you wouldn't buy it if it was $150. So why don't, like, why are we not valuing our labor the same way? We would never do that. And from a recruiter point of view, I hate it because someone who's hired people, I'm like, I don't want to waste my time or your time doing that. And I've worked for unionized organizations where everything is out in the open and people don't apply if it's too little money. Everybody wins. You don't have to put in an application. I don't have to read the application. We don't have to have the awkward conversation. So let's not do that. So you think pay transparency is the way, one of the ways, I suppose. And then what are your thoughts on like banning negotiation at all, because men are in a stronger position to do that, not only because the market determines that they've got higher salary, but they're not penalized when they get negotiate as women are. So what's your thoughts about that? I think that there is always going to be in every facet of our life, like some requirement for negotiation. I think that even when we say pay transparency, it's a range, right? Like we, we provide what we call brackets and So I think that there's some like healthy amount of recognizing that people do come in at different abilities and they do bring different things to the table. And this is not apples for apples in a lot of cases, especially in senior levels, but there does have to be a range and we cannot accept the fact that you would pay a woman $50,000 less than a man for a job that's been classified in the same same band. That can't happen. So I think the hard part with all this stuff is we could do so many things, but we can't do them all at once. So our focus is on working with the pay commissioners for equal pay for equal work, working on education first and foremost, without getting into sort of negotiation. I'm like, that is the way of the world right now. So we teach women how to negotiate. So we do the salary negotiation masterclasses. We do, we talk about the things that they can ask for. We break down job offers and the things they can push back on. And so we provide a lot of the education. So we have to look and say, which pieces are going to be helpful for our base, knowing that we're not attracting CEOs and whatever, and that many of many people are new to this in terms of never having negotiated. So our goal at Moms at Work is to provide a lot of educational pieces and then have people work their way up on the scale. Great. Great. So are there other areas that you'd also likely like to be influencing or areas that you hope others work to change so that you're not doing it all? I think that's the the one thing is I'm like, moms at work doesn't do it all. So I always believe this. I'm like, just because you want to do something doesn't need, to, you have to be a non-for-profit. We're not a non-for-profit. I will never be a non-for-profit. I don't want a board. I don't want any of those things, but we partner with so many different organizations, which is I'm fairly certain how you and I met that we have a huge base and we can support and amplify those things. So we're hoping to join forces with a professor who is 
started an organization to try and squash NDAs. So non-disclosure agreements were meant for tech companies and confidential information. They weren't meant to silence victims of abuse at work. That's not what they were meant for, and that's what they're being used for. And I think that is fundamentally wrong and should probably, it should be legislated out of practice. So they're working on similar things in the UK. So we don't do this in isolation. They're leading the charge and we support them a thousand percent and amplify their messages and help them write legislation if they require. We do the same thing with food share, TO, they're doing their own pay transparency work. I'm like, everybody working on these problems should be working together. That's how we do things faster. We shouldn't work in isolation. It's not going to, I don't need to fight anybody to be like, pay transparency is my thing. Let's not coordinate here. But we do that with lots of organizations. And it's worked really well in getting us the media attention that we need, getting us the change we need, and giving us access to expertise, which we also need. Great, great. I agree. I think that collaboration and partnership is is so important. And there is so many intersections across different areas. So for you, then, your skills developed from HR specialist to advocate. So how did that happen? Although you said it was quite a natural transition, and I can see how you can say that. But, But also, what are the key tools in advocacy that you can teach others? So my mother was an advocate, like not by practice or whatever, but just like she was in education. And I feel like educators for the whole entirety of their career just have to fight systems and fight to be recognized because it's another female dominated industry. So I spent a large amount of my teenage years picketing at Queens Park, which anybody in Toronto is like outside the legislature and listening to her passionately discuss how important pieces of education. And I got to see the same thing. My mom worked in a really um, high needs neighborhood where new immigrants, when they landed to Canada. And so she would, they would put out registration for kindergarten and she would have 50 kids show up on the first day. Right. So these are just the realities of the things that she knew that until we talk about them outside of our silo, other people don't understand. So for me, it was quite an easy transition. I think motherhood slapped me in the face career wise. I wasn't anticipating that. And you know what? Lean in really broke me like that book for as much as it's supposed to be powerful and all those things. Really, I'm like, I don't identify with any of this. I felt it was really underhanded in how it framed how basically you would have to have all of these things in order to be successful. And for the vast majority of people, they didn't, they don't have access to those things. So it's not fair. Like the whole book starts out with like how she got her first position because of her dad's friend. I'm like, you know what, (laughs) like this can't be the standard and please gosh, don't bring this into my workplace and make this the standard for me. So, because everybody was reading this book. So that really broke me. And my narrative and how I frame moms at work is I'm like, we will never be those people for you. What mothers need is support. They need to be heard. They need kindness and they need someone to fight for them. So women are exhausted. We do twice the amount of labor. We're working full time. We're raising children. Those children might have special needs. There's so many things at play is that they have to have something to look towards. And I was like, moms at work can be that thing for people. We can be that thing where we will not shut up. We will not talk about these things. So we put out a mat leave survey, the first one ever done in Canada, because apparently no one cared before. And I was like, employers need to understand that four out of 10 women in that survey considered quitting during the return to work process for mat leave. And I was like, I don't ever want to hear about like, why can't we retain mid and senior level women when it's staring you right in the face that you are doing this wrong. So no amount of leadership training or retreats or whatever is going to fix this, you have to fix the system. Otherwise, we're uninterested in having this conversation. 
And so that's really interesting. How, how do you see systems change? How do you fix a system? So I think that there's multiple arms. So our response to systems is really, I have waited a really long time for people to fix how mat leave is processed internally. And I reached out to a couple of my mentors and they're like, yeah, not many people have done this well, or even done it at all. Because when you look at the numbers between like short-term and long-term disability and workers comp, these are all very formalized processes, very formal. You get a form, you have a case manager, you get assistance, you get physio, you get all the things because it's quite a lengthy leave. And so all these things are used to mitigate that leave, but these same processes can be applied to patern to like parental leave as well. You should get a handbook to be like, here's who you call. Here's the forms you need to fill out. Here's your contact person that you can get in touch with. If you have any questions, here's the person you can chat with. Here's your options for how you want to come back to work. Do you want to be invited to the Christmas party while you're off? Do you want us to have you on a mailing list? Like these are really simple. You have to give women um, the opportunity to make choices. That's not what happens during these leaves. Like my keys were taken. My email was cut off. I... Uh, felt totally disconnected from a place that I'd worked for many years. And you know what, while I was away, people were given promotions, things happen. I didn't know any of this. And I was like, so how can we on one hand be screaming, we want more women in leadership and be not give them the choices to be like, Hey, maybe I would have come back from maternity leave early if I knew that was on the table. So that's, that's a system change. And really what I've discovered is that you just have to build it for them. So I'm not really interested in big companies at all. Like all the big banks that they'll do it eventually on their own, but 85% of people are employed by small and mid-sized employers. And those are people who do not have the tools to build these programs. If they did, they would have done it. And so our goal is to make these accessible and affordable and to provide support to these HR people who are usually a team of one so that they can do these better. Great. Thank you. That's great to hear those types of examples. Cause I think sometimes we say it's the system and then nobody takes responsibility for it because it's not their problem, but the system is people. So I agree model policies and language and module legislation. Those are all things that can help. So those are good examples. How did COVID-19 change your strategies and the playing field more, more generally? What, what obviously we experienced such mi- major changes and people experienced it in different ways, but what was your experience and how did you help women through this? Once you get past the initial shock of what's going on and making sure everybody's safe and doing it, but my concern was I saw I, because I do return to work as an occupation and a lot of this is very well studied is I'm like, collectively, we are not going to do well and women are going to take it. And so I was calling things before they happened. I was like, women are going to drop out of the workforce because, and I'm not going to say that they left the workforce. I'm saying they got pushed out of the workforce for a very simple reason is that women are paid less money. So if me and my partner had to look at ourselves and be like, okay, I've got three kids at home now, full-time in lockdown, whose job does it make more sense to give up in order to make this work? And he makes twice as much money as I do. So that is not a choice that society has built out on purpose as a reason. And so that's not a choice that I got to make that was pre-decided. So there's no discussion in that. So I started talking about this thing where I said to the women in my group, I'm like, this is not your fault. This is not anything you've done wrong because people were upset. They had to give up their career, quit their job, lose their seniority, tenure, all the things in order to keep their family safe. And I was like, you are doing the right thing for you and your family in a very strange and dangerous and upsetting situation. We're in survival mode. 
the next thing we saw happen was they started firing pregnant women and women with children. So we got legal counsel and had lawyers available to help people move this. I was like, you can't, under the guise of COVID, lay off two people on your team and they happen to be the two women who have young children. That's not how this works. So we were ready for those things. We had a lot of benefits come out. So we had tax specialists helping people walk through. We had in Moms at Work, Susan, who I will shout from the rooftops forever, was literally typing out as the announcements were being made, what the benefits were going to be and how you could access them. And I was like, we had so much being thrown at us that just having people to distill the information was so helpful. And then the next thing we did is I'm like, I will not shut up about this. Like we cannot stop everything that they did. I'm sure that was the same where you are. I'm like, they were opening bars before they opened schools. They were opening businesses before they were focusing on daycares. I'm like, everything that was doing was not supporting the individuals who were keeping society afloat. And that I found just really hard to look at every day. And let's be very fair. I'm like, I got three kids. I was trying to run this business while making no money because no one is doing career coaching during a pandemic. And, but I couldn't stop. So lots of other people shut down. I didn't feel I had that choice because I felt like this, if I didn't do this, a piece of me would die and I would lose my purpose. And I couldn't stand to watch my group members suffer and people were suffering. So if we could help people get access to money and I do all of those things. And I said, on the other side of this, we will help you get back to work. We will help you get a job. We will help each other because people who are still in there will help hire you back. And that's what's happened. So it's been horrible and beautiful that we had this space together to share our trauma, to share all of these things. And I think that was, I think that was the most important thing that I got left with was that what I do has meaning and the things that I did, people will remember. And thank you so much for that, because I think the way you describe it and frame it in this system that we're working in is so important. We forget those reasons, the way that that the mother has got less income isn't her fault. So yeah, I think that's so important to highlight that design, but also just your leadership and your compassion. We're so lucky that there's people like you willing to do this. And I'm glad it has meaning for you because I can see that is, is part of your drive. So let's turn to burnout a little. Do, do many of the women you work with experience burnout? And as an HR specialist, how should companies manage burnout? I think it's been a consistent theme. And I think there's this sort of the whole concept of mothers are superheroes is just so damaging. And I think Instagram for all of its thing and social media is so damaging because you look at all these other people and they're like, look how happy they are. Their kids are all healthy. They're doing so well at work. They're, they've made partner. And what my goal has been is I'm like, we need to normalize that people have lives and that trying to keep all these, you know, plates spinning will lead to burnout. That's not how we're supposed to function. And capitalism as a society, patriarch as a structure, I'm like, it's designed to push women to the point of burnout. And because it's not realistic to be all of the, you're trying to achieve something and we don't even know why we're trying to achieve it. So everything that I put out, I'm like, I don't wear makeup. That's a personal choice. I don't have a lot of time and space for whatever. I'm like, I don't have, I don't prioritize some of the things. And I think that there needs to be more examples of that. And my life is messy. I'm like, I have a disability. Last five years have been a hot mess. I've got two kids with food allergies. I've EpiPen one of them 11 times. We were in the ICU. I'm like, this isn't easy. And it's not 
And that's what life is. So trying to push yourself into this perfect box will always lead to burnout. And I think works expectations on us while we're trying to do, you probably know the numbers better than I do, all this extra at home, of course you will have burnout. Of course you will break down. And I think we just need to be much better at recognizing the sign and understanding what things we can drop and what things we can't drop. So for me, I was like, oh, I'm burning out, but I need to do these things, but you can't drop specialist appointments and you can't drop the things that you do to make money. So what happens is then you drop other things that are really like self-soothing just because you have no more space, but it's very real and it's hard for HR because it's hard to get involved. But my ticket was always when people are struggling at work, there's usually something else going on. So whenever we would set up like performance management meetings, because sometimes managers would be like, I don't know, his performance dipped or whatever. I would sit down and I'd be like, what else is happening? I was like, maybe this is work-related, but maybe it's not. Is there something else going on that maybe we could help with? No judgment and you don't have to tell us. But nine times out of 10, I had one guy, he's my wife got diagnosed with cancer last week. I'm like, that would do it. (laughs) That would do it. Okay. So like, how do we support you? How do we do these other things? Another one was like, my baby is being born with a birth defect. I don't know how to process this. And I'm like, so they're trying to live their lives while also being good employees. And sometimes that just doesn't work. And I think HR needs to either learn the appropriate legal questions that you're allowed to ask. And I always put it out there. I'm like, you don't have to tell me anything. We have an EAP program, but if we can help you, we'd like to. And this is not being held against you. The fact that you have a life. Because really, for many companies, and some people's companies are not like this, but our company, we had the resources to help people. Addiction programs, EAP programs, health programs, time off, whatever you need. We can help you do that. Employees are valuable to us in the places that I've worked. But it's very hard to, one one person said to me, like, admit defeat. I'm like, this isn't defeat. This is life. And to think that your life is going to be perfect is just, is not the way you want to do it. It's messy. That makes you a stronger individual because now you can have empathy for other people when they're experiencing the same thing. So make you a better manager. So it's, but burnout is hard and it's hard to crawl back from is what I found. I found it hard to get out of that space. So you recently experienced burnout at at a new level. Can you please describe that experience and what you want other moms and advocates? Because obviously as an advocate, you are at risk of burnout because you're so passionate and driven. So yeah, what would you like people to hear from your experience? I think that, I think the pandemic, I'm like, I don't think there was ever a point where I wasn't burnt out, if that's even possible. Hmm. No, it's chronic stress. It really is. It's chronic stress. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I just accepted that this was, everybody kept throwing the term around the new normal. And I was like, great. My, my new normal is like lying on the ground crying. And at a certain point you have to look and I said, okay, you know what? My children's mental health, my children's safety is the most, this is what I'm going to prioritize. And that made sense to me. And then it didn't because then I wasn't prioritizing myself. And then I would, and then I would switch focus and be like, no, I have to prioritize my community. But every choice I made seemed to sacrifice something else. And that burnt me out even more. So the other thing I wasn't prepared for is like, I had one of my uncles die and my aunt die and another friend got diagnosed with cancer. And not being able to be there and not having the option to go to them before they died just broke me in a new way. Like you don't realize how much, how important it is to have those final moments to do the funeral. Like I did not have deep enough respect for the process of like funerals until someone said to you, no, you can't go. And then there's no option. 
know what? And a Zoom funeral sucks, by the way. Just so everybody who hasn't experienced that, it's like the worst thing ever. It's let's sit in isolation alone in my room with a TV screen and watch the whole thing happen. It's not okay. So I think that there is no way in hell that anybody during this pandemic could have not experienced some level of burnout. But because I love what I do and the reasons I do it so much, I think it hurt me even more because I had to watch other people collectively experiencing the same things I did. And I am probably the most empathetic person alive. My husband says it's actually probably something I should deal with, but it makes it really hard because you, because you internalize other people's struggles. So that's been, for me, it's been chronic and it's been hard. And you know what, being online all the time has been really hard because so much gets lost in translation with people typing things out, Twitter and all the other stuff. If you can't, there is no small smile or people wing, all the things that make you understand what they're trying to say. There is none of that. And it gets, and it can be very hard. So do you, do you have any strategies that you're finding helpful or thoughts about going forward, what you can do to prevent it in yourself, or you can recommend to other advocates? Cause I totally agree. What makes you an advocate is being able to feel what other people are going through and wanting to change that. So it, it totally makes sense. That's partly what drives you, but it does always put us at risk for, for burnout. So do you have any thoughts about that? I've never known how to pace myself. It's either pedal to the floor or stopped. I have two ways of going, which actually works really well for advocates, but burns it. But I'm aware now that I will burn out everybody else around me. So I've become much more self-aware. So that is my, my thought for other advocates is I'm like, you love what you do so much that it can burn other people out because oftentimes I find is people just like to be near the warmth of the flame, right? Until they get burned. So I have a hard time because I funk, that is how I function normally. That's, I just go. And so I've had to learn to pace myself to be like, if it doesn't get done tonight, or if it all doesn't get out right now. I'm not a brain surgeon. No one's dying. So I've had to, and I talk to myself. My mug actually says, I'm looking at it says, of course I talk to myself. Sometimes I need expert advice, but it's important for me to talk myself through these things because as an advocate, it all feels so time sensitive. If you don't get to a certain thing, if they're going to put legislation through, if, if the election's coming up, everything feels like you're on a deadline, but they're really self-imposed deadlines. So that's been important for me in looking at how I want my children to advocate and in how I want them to protect themselves at the same time. It doesn't have to be like this. So trying to set healthy norms and healthy behaviors to protect the people around me is my biggest takeaway from all of this. And it's so interesting also that you mention the model that you're trying to set for your kids, going back to how your mom was a model for you to become an advocate. And obviously you're going to be a model for your kids, but I think that's so important too. And I've really thought about this in terms of seeing my daughter is extremely industrious. And I think she has that empathy that you talk about too. So I think she would make a wonderful advocate, but I want her to understand how to put her on her own oxygen mask first. And actually I just finished listening to and, and blogging about a book by Janice Johnson Diaz called Parenting Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful Change Makers. And it's that joyful part. It's being able to do it not because it's a responsibility and a burden, but because it brings you joy. And I hear that and I get that. I still find that difficult because when you're driven. And the reason that people advocate is not for reasons that bring them joy. 
Do you know what I mean? Like making change means that something's not working. So that sits heavy on me is that I'm trying to change a system and systems or things that will negatively impact my children. And I'm trying to raise my children. Look, I have three white boys who will become three white men who will have to be different. This has to be done differently. I refuse to raise children who will not be active participants in the world and who will stand up for other people and who will understand that the world does not revolve around them. And that is that weighs heavy on me in how I raise them. So I understand the idea of wanting to bring joy and get, you get into the whole passion. I get people who come to me as a career coach and like, I need to find my passion. I'm like, oh, for crying out loud. And that's a hard thing to dissect is because at this point I can truly say I'm passionate about what I do. But it's not because it brings me 100% joy. There has to be pain in order to experience the other side of it. There has to be struggle in order to have a victory, right? No, nothing that I have done in my life that I look back and say, wow, I did that was easy. And I think that's the biggest takeaway. I'm like, nothing that you will look back on that you will remember for the rest of your life will have been an easy accomplishment. And I think people need to remember that this is not supposed to be easy at all. That's not what it's designed to be. And that these victories are so much sweeter because we fought for them. Thank you for sharing that. Cause that does give me a lot to, to reflect on. Cause sometimes I think, am I just getting in my own way? What, why do I find things more difficult? But maybe it is partly that like you, I'm working on things that are hard, that a societal level change that I think is hard. I think change coming from behavior science, I know how difficult change is, but when you're trying to do it at scale, it's definitely challenging. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that perspective too. But I'll say that's the magic of what I do is that because we center it in community, the changes that we make are within, I look at them as in individuals. So the importance of education. So when we talk about something like salary negotiation, so I did this salary masterclass, like with all the things that I knew about you know, how it looked on the other side from an HR side. What are the considerations we have? What are the things that we have on the table? Like, I know all of that. And so it's really a sharing of information, but every person who takes that, then tell somebody else about that. will then share it with someone else who will then be the manager who will fight for their employee. I'm like, that's how we change things on scale. And it's by reaching out to individuals. You're not going to make the impact you want by reaching a room of 400. You're going to do it by those sort of one-on-one approach. And it seems slower, but it spreads like wildfire when you can really explain those systems and be really intentional about helping them put all the pieces together. Because sometimes there's just so much information out there that it, it doesn't feel achievable or understandable or that you could do anything about it. And that's our change. It's like, it takes very simple steps for you to be a change maker. And it doesn't mean that you have to do this as a full-time job. I agree. And I I think really, it sounds like you're very much going beyond education because you're giving people the skills, the insight, and then also a little bit the the call to go teach someone else. So yeah, and I think that's that that definitely goes beyond education. I can see that where approach can work. So one of the things that I thought was quite unique too about your experience is that your work has spanned other countries. And a global as a global citizen that I consider myself, I really like to learn from what is going well in other countries and what they're doing well that we can borrow and try here. I understand that not every situation is is going to work. Solutions from other countries don't necessarily work in a, in, in a new country, in a different situation. But what are some of the things that you're seeing in other countries around the issues you're concerned about or around burnout that you think we could be 
focusing on more here in the US? So that's been so how you and I met through this group, which is mostly US based. And I offered my services because Canada has a little bit of a leg up in the fact that a lot of these system changes have already been put in place. And I think it's important to understand the sort of like sales pitches for paid leave and things like that. So Canada has 18 months of paid leave, but what people don't understand is it's paid at 33%. So for many people, it is completely unsustainable, but for me, it's the protection that matters, right? Your job is protected during those 18 months. So that's an important piece. We also have, because now we have a female finance minister, so our budget from our federal government came out and it had a mother on the cover of <laughs> the cover of a budget presented by our first female finance minister who presented then $10 day daycare as an option. And I have before discounted the importance that economics plays in all of this and how strong capitalism is. And I think that they framed it in a way that they looked at all the extra income that would come in from supporting childcare. And it's billions of dollars because when women work, they pay taxes, then they spend more money. Then that goes on to all the things. So I think that's been a real revelation for me in terms of not just individual money, but by societal money. The UK does something that may not be as relevant to the US because there is no paid leave. But a big problem for us is this sort of disengagement from the workplace when you have a year long leave. And they have what's called the 15 keep in touch days. So during your leave that you can be paid for up to 15 days to do a project or to stagger your return to work or things like that. And I think that's clever. I think that there needs to be paid leave for miscarriage and infant loss. I think that not having people have access to those things after not only a death, but like the physical trauma that goes along with that is completely unfair. And we're grappling with a lot of the same issues around abortion that you are in the States, not on the same level, but I think that really impacts women and society as a whole, as we have to worry about those things that provide the discussion about our bodies and our rights is very heavy and something that I was not anticipating having to fight for again. I was like, we've already been here. But I think that a lot of the things that we're seeing around flexible work, so Flex Appeal in the UK is fighting for um, flexible work as default as legislation so that you don't have to beg for flexibility to take care of your family or take care of your children is an important piece of the puzzle. And I think that really framing around being on and off work is going to be a huge one. So Portugal just did that. They put in legislation where your boss can't reach you after a certain point, which is sad that we have to legislate. But because of this way of working, we really need to help people put down. Really. And that's not just for women or mothers. That's for everybody. And I know that's a hard thing to do, but I think it's important. Nothing like hugely life-hardly. And I'm not going to do what everybody does and be like, look at what the Scandinavian countries do, because I feel it's totally unfair because they're just like light years ahead in a lot of things. But building the base in what the U.S. is doing now in terms of leave and setting those things is critical. It's critical for the success of women. And and I appreciate that one of the ladies that I interviewed from STEM was saying these extended leaves don't necessarily help women's careers. So we do have to be careful about admiring that if it doesn't also come with opportunities to get back on track or to stay in touch, like you said, those 15 days. So yeah, it, it is interesting to hear perspectives from Europe as well. So I appreciate that. Okay, well, this has been great today, Alison. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners that I haven't had a chance to ask you about? I just keep repeating that message that I see women, mothers specifically, this has weighed so heavy on them. It has weighed so heavy on them that they have done something wrong. 
that they haven't been able to figure it out or do whatever. And I'm like, this is a pandemic. This is chronic stress. Chronic. I didn't even know chronic burnout was a thing, but we are collectively experiencing it. And so I tell women, I'm like, just because other people seem to have it together just means that they're having a good day. It doesn't mean that it's the truth. So please don't compare the things that I'm doing during a pandemic to what you should be doing. Because believe it or not, I'm like, I curled under my desk for two days straight, but you don't get to see that. I'm trying to be very open with those things, which I think we should all be because this is very hard. And so my message to your listeners is, I'm like, I know it doesn't feel like it, but you're doing a good job. Thank you so much for listening today. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. And please download your free guide on my website to how to spot burnout in your employees. Are you worried about your employees burning out? Are you losing some of your best talent, but you're too exhausted and burned out yourself to solve this problem? Are you concerned that any efforts you will make will be wasted? Would you like a clear roadmap for solving burnout and DEI challenges in one that you can adjust to your company culture? If your organization needs to ignite its burnout efforts with an inspiring keynote, I can talk about my story, the science behind burnout, and the science and practice of preventing burnout from my own experience, my podcast guests, and my public health behavior change multi-level approach. I can help provide a strategic plan of evidence-based solutions matched to your needs and a blueprint process to implement them in your workplace to improve psychological safety, reduce burnout and turnover, and ensure that your company remains a fair and value-driven company for thriving employees, where you are also no longer burned out and instead can effectively support others. The best kickstart is through a keynote. Just contact me through my website at drjacquelinecurr.com. And please remember, Burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Feel the